Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter i3 Insights, in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you might know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Gus Sorter, who is best known for his role as Chief Investment Officer of Vanguard. And in this role, he was managing the Global Investment Management Group, responsible for 1.7 trillion in assets. They call him Mr. Index, and for a good reason. Vanguard had only two index funds when Gus started in 1991. Under his leadership as Chief Investment Officer, the number of index funds offered by Vanguard has jumped to 75. Assets in the funds grew from 1.2 billion to almost 1.2 trillion. Today, amongst his many activities, um, he's also an advisor to Australian pension fund SunSuper. Gus, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start a bit with the start. I'm going to take you right back to age eight. There is a, a, a website that is called Buggleheads, and it has your bio up there and said that at age eight, you started taking deposits and making loans to neighbors, effectively starting your own bank. Is that true? And what is wrong with playing with Lego? <laughs> uh, it, it is true. I'm, I'm hesitant to admit. Uh, I think I probably broke several hundred uh, banking laws. Uh, but uh, yes, I didn't think my neighbors were going to turn me in. Uh, they would give me a, a dollar or two, and I would turn around and deposit it uh, in the bank and earn interest on it, and then turn around and give them the interest uh, that they would have earned. So... Um, yeah, I was a little enterprising at eight and uh, not too much into Legos. <laughs> so where did you get the idea from? Uh, you know, just from my parents and um, going to the bank with them. And I, I guess I was just curious about how money could make money for you. And, uh, and really, that was the genesis. And then it also says that around um, in your 20s, you formed your own gold mine. What in, inspired you to make that investment? Probably naivete. Uh, I was uh, working as a commercial real estate developer in Denver, and we were building uh, really about 11-story office buildings. And uh, I was working on the financial side of, of putting these deals together. And this opportunity came along to develop a gold mine. And I figured, well, I've been working on the financial side, raising capital to build buildings. Why can't I raise some capital to, to build a gold mine? And, uh, and so I put a venture capital deal together. It took me about three years to run it under. Uh, it turned out to be a little bit of a frustrating po- point in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So looking back, what is your view on gold today? Because a lot of investors think that gold is a bit speculative. It doesn't have any inherent value. How do you look back on that? Yeah, so I started that in 1982, and that was really kind of the, the height of the uh, gold mania, the gold rush. And I was looking at a little bit more like a mining company as opposed to 
the luster of gold itself. Although I, I must admit, if, if we were mining for salt, I probably wouldn't have uh, created the, the firm. Uh, so my, my view then was to hopefully make money mining gold and, and, uh, and selling it immediately, not holding on to it. Uh, my view is that, that gold is kind of a uh, Armageddon type of investment. Uh, if, you, if the world collapses, probably gold is, is fine. Um, my view is the world is not going to collapse. And so, I, uh, you know, gold doesn't give you any sort of rate of return. It is, uh, uh, you know, as you indicate, speculative. You buy it with the idea you can sell it later to somebody at a higher price. There's no dividend on it, no interest. So uh, I, I think if people do have it in their portfolio, it should be a small, small part of the portfolio. Yeah. Well, I'm glad the world is not coming to an end. Just yet. <laughs> so we had banks, we had a gold mine, you mentioned real estate. How did you get started in the asset management industry? When my gold mining venture went under, I had a good friend from uh, business school who had kept in contact with me. And he went to work for PIMCO, who is now the, the famous bond management firm. And uh, he kept after me and kept telling me that I belonged in the investment management industry. And, and actually, quite honestly, I, I felt that as well. I bought my first stock when I was 11 or 12 years old after, after the banking experience. And, uh, and I, I loved uh, investing. So uh, I followed his advice. And um, interestingly, I had some opportunities perhaps to go with PIMCO out on the West Coast in California. But I grew up in Ohio in, in more the center of the United States. And um, I wanted to go back home. Unfortunately, there just aren't many investment management firms Ohio. Uh, so I worked for a bank uh, in Ohio uh, in their trust investment area and yeah. got experience. And I think that that first stock, was that a, a basketball team? Uh, the basketball team was actually my second stock. Yes, I, uh, my first stock was a, a snowmobile company, and my second one was uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers. I, I'm proud to say I was one of the original owners of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, I, I grew up 90 miles south of Cleveland. So uh, yeah, yeah. So taking it to uh, Vanguard, um, not looking at individual stocks, but we're looking at uh, uh, indexes. And even to this day, we still have this discussion about active, passive, you know, what is better. Um, do you get tired of this conversation? You know, I've had the debate uh, thousands of times, literally thousands of times, as we were trying to build indexing back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, it was not well received at all. And it was really a brick by brick business building venture. And uh, I was invited to many, many conferences. And interestingly, they would have me on a panel and I'd be in a debate with somebody else. And, and it would always be a top performing active manager. So, uh, you know, you're always kind of with, with your back in the corner. Indexing is a very good strategy and appropriate for most investors, but it's never going to be top performing in any given year. It's going to be a good performing investment that really compounds over time into top performance. So I actually, I, I do love the debate because um, I think it, it shows the advantages of indexing and also allows for the advantages of active management to complement indexing. Mm. And it seems that we have moved on a little bit from one against the other two, where I think we see more especially amongst the larger funds that, that don't always have a choice to go 100% active, that they say, well, we'll do both. We, we'll have a core allocation to passive, and we'll do some things around it in, in the active space. Do, do you feel that the 
this uh, debate has become more sophisticated around this issue? I do. I think a lot of investors have, have realized that there are significant advantages to indexing and that it should be a core portion of their portfolio. It's a great foundation because it's going to provide you with very competitive returns that will outperform a majority of investors in the marketplace. So it's a great place to start. And you have a good deal of confidence that it will provide that rate of return for you in the future. At the same time, uh, the satellite portion, so a core satellite approach, uh, you can use the satellite portion to invest in actively managed funds to enhance your returns that you get from an index fund. So if you, if the index fund is your, your ballast or your foundation, hopefully you can add some incremental return above and beyond that without too much risk uh, by investing in active as well. Thinking about indexing, what is indexing? And I think in the past you have made uh, a, a strong point around an index is a market capitalization weighted um, construction. Why do you feel strongly that it has to be only that type of model? So it, it turns out that there, there are two rationales for why indexing uh, should be an attractive investment. Number, the first one is based on the modern, uh, on efficient market hypothesis. I personally uh, believe the markets are quite efficient, but not perfectly so. So uh, I'm not totally on board with the efficient market hypothesis. If you if you believed in the efficient market hypothesis, then clearly the only thing to do is index. I mean that that states that everything's fairly priced and you shouldn't spend any money uh, trying to outperform because you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, the other argument is what is called sharp math. Bill Sharp was the uh, inventor of this uh, simple concept that uh, in aggregate investors get the, rate, the market rate of return. I mean, in aggregate investors own the market. Uh, they own it by market capitalization. In other words, they own more stock in, in uh, uh, let's say, Facebook or, or Microsoft or uh, BHP than they would in uh, uh, you know, a small company. So that, by definition, is telling you that investors in aggregate own by market capitalization. Some will outperform, but others will underperform by the same amount. I mean, you, you, to the extent everybody on average gets the market, you, know, you can't all be above average. Um, when you introduce costs into the equation, and costs are really significant, and I think people really dramatically underestimate the impact of costs, then all of a sudden the marginal outperformance before costs become underperformers after costs. And that's really why indexing works, because it's extremely low cost. It's a handful of basis points or, or a fraction of a percentage point um, that you pay in costs, and you get largely the market rate of return, uh, and, and you'll outperform a majority of investors because of that. But that argument is based on market capitalization weighting. There are, as you're implying, other ways that people are coming up with indexes, uh, equal weighting or things called fundamental indexing. Um, those really give you something very similar to what you get with capitalization weighting with tilts to it. So in other words, there are segments of the market. There are large cap stocks, there are small cap stocks. There are value-oriented stocks, and there are growth-oriented stocks. So all of these different segments of the market will perform a little bit differently from the market as a whole. And, and when you weight things differently from a market cap weighting, you're, you're actually inadvertently tilting towards one of those investment styles. So when you equal weight an index, you're getting a, a tilt towards smaller cap stocks. And it turns out that you can just invest in a small cap uh, a small cap index fund that is capitalization weighted and get a very similar return. Same thing when, when people tilt towards um, value. When they, these fundamental indexes, they're basically a tilt towards value. You can get the same uh, return if you use a capitalization weighted index uh, that is tilted towards value. So uh, 
you, the, the capitalization weighting is less expensive. You don't have to rebalance as much. It's lower cost than uh, uh, fee-wise that uh, most of these other types of indexes charge, and it's, it's, it's more tax efficient because you basically buy and hold. So I think you can accomplish, if you want a, a small cap tilt or a value tilt, you can do it with capitalization-weighted indexes. I think part of the debate around uh, market capitalization model is around, is, is this the best way to construct an index? And I think where this debate becomes most clear is within the fixed income space where there are issues with having the largest exposure to the most indebted entity in, in the index, even though that represents the market. Do you think that's a fair comment? And, and can we still call them indices? So, you know, going back to the Sharp math, the Bill Sharp math, which is a mathematical tautology. Again, you know, in aggregate, investors are going to get the market rate of return. Uh, when we start to think of other asset classes other than stocks, like bonds, fixed income, the, the concept still applies. If you want to be a top performer, outperforming the average, capitalization weighting still makes sense. It's true that you put more weight in, in companies that have, uh, or, or countries for that matter, that have greater debt. And people have said, well, so you're taking more risk because you're investing in the most heavily debt-laden companies or countries. But at the same time, that's already implicit in the pricing. So in other words, if there's additional risk associated with investing in either that company or that country, it's going to be reflected in a higher yield, a higher rate of return. So, so you're really being compensated for that. And, and the people who say, well, you know, you're, you're just taking on greater risk, you're being compensated for taking on greater risk. And again, the only way to ensure that you're going to be a top performer over the long term um, mathematically is by relying on that sharp math and, and owning the entire market capitalization weighted market. So this is where the uh, efficiency of the markets come back in, where it says, okay, this is greater risk, but it's priced accordingly. Yeah. So, you know, as I said earlier, I don't believe in perfectly efficient markets, but I don't think there are grossly inefficient markets either. And, and actually, over time, I think the markets have become more and more efficient. I mean, I think back to the 1980s when I started in this business. And quite honestly, active management was a lot easier back then than it is today. And that's because there were greater inefficiencies. So there were greater um, opportunities to take advantage of mispricings. Uh, today, those mispricings are very small. And even if they're not precise, they're not grossly wrong. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very seldom that you would find uh, a company or a country that is uh, much riskier than its yield would indicate. I would like to take you back a little bit to innovation in the uh, index space and especially the exchange traded funds. I understand that um, um, you were one of the, the earlier believers at Vanguard within this vehicle, but I also heard that when, when Jack Bogle, the, the founder, found out that you were going into ETFs, that he cut short his holiday and came back to grill you on why you're going down this route, even though he was supposed to have retired already by that stage. What, what happened there? Yes, Jack was retired at that point. Uh, and, and Jack always went on vacation for the whole month of August. He had a house uh, uh, up in the mountains and he went away for the month of August. I don't. We, we happened to announce that we were going to launch ETFs while he was away. I mean, that was just pure coincidence. And since he wasn't uh, working with the company anymore, he wasn't aware that we had been working on this for actually a couple of years. It took a long time for us to to launch because of our, our unique structure and, and getting it through the regulators. But uh, so Jack did find out when he was on vacation. I don't know that he actually came back early from the vacation, but 
But the day he got back at, at Vanguard, and so he still had an office at Vanguard where he did his research, uh, and we have a, a building that has the, um, the, the dining area, the dining hall that um, most uh, of the employees congregate for, for lunch. And it has a, an upper level and a lower level. And I entered the lower level to, to go grab some lunch. Uh, and, and Jack happened to be standing in the, at the upper level at the top of the stairs, and he saw me at the bottom. And, and this, this foyer is typically filled with lots of people around lunchtime. And he, Jack has a, had a booming voice, and he yelled out, Gus, what the heck is going on around here? So, um, you know, Jack was uh, um, uh, vocally uh, not in favor, or, you know, I'll say it stronger than that. Jack was against ETFs. Um, Jack and I agreed on an awful lot of things, but we disagreed on that one. Did he ever turn around on this uh, topic? No, I mean, he was very vocal, uh, you know, until his final days that uh, he did not like ETFs. So what, what attracted you in, in ETFs as a vehicle? I, I started with Vanguard in 1987, to be precise, October 5th, 1987. Um, some of your listeners will, will recall that... Uh, October 19th was the crash of 87, two weeks after I started. And I think we're all shaped by our experiences, and that was a scary one for me. I, I was actually managing the very small equity group at that point in time, but it, it put a lot of pressure on us. And, uh, you know, we had uh, some withdrawals, and I was trying to uh, sell stocks to meet those withdrawals that day. Uh, and that really kind of shaped my thinking. When I started thinking about uh, ETFs, I started thinking that uh, – We, were, we had just come out of the uh, late 1997 period, which was known as the Asian contagion, and the, the markets became very volatile. Uh, then we went into the summer of 98, which was the Russian debt crisis, again, volatility in the markets. And I was worried that we might experience another crash of 87 type of event. So um, I started thinking about how could we enable investors that wanted to get out of our funds, enable them to get out of the funds without impacting the fund itself. When an investor gets out of a fund, you have to sell off some of the investments in order to fund their redemption. So uh, I started thinking that if we had a share class of ETFs in the same fund, in other words, you could invest in the fund two different ways, either directly with the fund like you tr typically would, or through the ETF share class. It turns out because of the mechanics of the ETF share class, if an investor happened to own that share class, they could sell that on the stock exchange, which is where you trade ETFs, and it would have zero impact to the fund. And so I reasoned that if investors were so inclined to sell, they would be attracted to the ETF share class and not to the conventional share class. And that would enable them to have all the flexibility they want without disrupting the investors that were long-term oriented and leaving the fund with additional costs. So they really complemented each other. Yeah. And is that impact mainly in terms of uh, taxation? It's, um, it's both taxation and transaction costs, yes. So the taxation piece would be if you have to sell off an investment that is appreciated in price, you have a capital gain that you have to pay tax on. Uh, but at the same time, if you have to sell off, you have transaction costs of, of selling the investments as well. And so we would avoid all of that uh, by uh, if, if people were in the ETF share class. I think to a degree, um, the initial take-up here in Australia was mainly retail. Uh, and we don't see a lot of institutional investors um, using ETFs other than temporary parking money or tilting. 
how's the situation in the U.S.? Is, is there more institutional take-up? There is a little bit more inst- institutional take-up in the U.S. So we see institutions using them for any number of reasons. Uh, sometimes they use them for long-term investments. Sometimes, as, as you indicate, uh, just short-terms. They might be migrating from one type of investment to another or from one manager to another. You can imagine a, a large institution that has a, a manager uh, and they might fire the manager, but they need market exposure uh, while they're looking for a new manager, and so they might move for short term into ETFs. Um, so I'd say ETFs are, are used uh, considerably by institutions and tremendously by the advisor community in the U.S. So what do you think is going to be the next innovation in indexing or in ETFs? Is that around active ETFs or perhaps the smart beta ETFs? What is your view on that? Yeah, so the interesting thing, a lot of people talk about ETFs as being a product. And, and I've been pretty vocal saying they're, they're not a product. They're a way to distribute a, a well-known product. In other words, it's, a, it's really just a different way to distribute an index fund. If you look at all the ETFs, They can be done in a traditional mutual fund. Um, ETFs in the United States are legally organized as mutual funds with certain exemptive relief. So uh, they they come out of the same part of the tax code. Uh, To me, ETFs are really just another way to distribute. I do think they they will grow into a way to distribute active funds as well. Um, The smart beta concept I'm not a a big fan of. In fact, uh, we we had uh, what's become smart beta in the early 90s. Um, We started, I I mentioned earlier about the different segments of the market, and that's a little bit of what smart beta is all about, is uh, targeting different segments of the market. You know, I talked about uh, um, fundamental indexing. That's uh, Fundamental indexing turned out to be difficult to market. So you, you rename it smart beta. And, and, and like, why would anybody get dumb beta if you could get smart beta? Uh, but um, it's really just getting different uh, exposure to f- different segments of the market. And you can do that through capitalization weighted indexes, which we have offered since the early 90s. Uh, but I think my, my objection is that being marketed as something that will provide you long-term outperformance. And I just don't think that's going to hold up. And I think investors are expecting more than than what uh, these products can deliver. You talked a little bit earlier ab- about the market structure as well, and that you said that in the past it was probably a little bit easier to be active, and, and today markets are a little bit more efficient. There has been a lot of discussion as well about the impact that the large technology firms have on the structure of the market um, with capital light models and potentially has changed the structure of the market as well in the sense that there's less ability to participate in, in, in the growth. Do you worry about these types of developments? Um, I, I don't. I think that uh, technology has been an advantage for investing and has reduced costs significantly. So I think in, on the transaction cost side, um, it used to be that Humans were involved in, in all trading, and if you wanted to buy something, you had to buy it from a, a market maker and, and, uh, or, or conversely sell it to a market maker. Uh, now it's done electronically. Almost all trading is electronic nowadays, and it cuts out a layer of profit that that middleman would, would earn. And so transaction costs have plummeted. I mean, literally from what would have been 1% or more if you, if you bought a stock, to now maybe a quarter of a percent. So that is a huge amount of savings to investors. That's a benefit. I think your question is also about investing in 
um, technology companies. They are light in, in capital, as you point out. They're, it's more human capital than physical capital. Um, that's, uh, I, I don't think that distorts the market. It's just a different way of creating a business. And um, ultimately, you're investing in businesses uh, for the profit they earn. And it doesn't really matter if the profit is generated by human capital or uh, machinery, uh, like a manufacturing company. Uh, so from an investment standpoint, uh, you just have to analyze it differently. Uh, I think you were also asking a little bit about uh, do you get to participate in the early uh, stages of, of, say, IT um, being kind of venture capital. A lot of firms uh, lift just uh, uh, one IPO uh, last week in the United States, Lyft is like Uber, uh, if, if Lyft isn't here in Australia. Um, and the people that uh, created Lyft, it went um, for $22 billion IPO. So these are called unicorns, anything that uh, IPOs for more than a billion dollars. And uh, the venture capital investors do extremely well. And, uh, and then ultimately, investors, public investors get to participate after it, the initial public offering. Um, you know, I, I think that's just the risk one takes in venture capital. For every unicorn we hear about, there are um, thousands of dead unicorns along the road. So uh, um, you, know, you should be compensated for risk. And even when these companies do go public, they still uh, generate uh, good profits for investors. I mean, look at companies like Facebook or Amazon or Google. Uh, investors, public investors, have made a lot of money investing in those those companies. Now, you did work with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. on, on, on uh, equity market structure issues. What, what did they focus on? It was a number of things. So I worked for, um, helped four different commissioners, four consecutive commissioners of the SEC over a decade or, or more. And uh, they were working on a lot of structural changes to the marketplace, you know, going from that old structure that I mentioned where everything was driven by humans and, and uh uh, prices were priced in eighths, so it was uh, $10 at 0.125 cents, 12.5 cents. Uh, um, they created decimalization, so things started being priced in pennies. Um, they brought in electronic trading. They tried to make sure that electronic trading was fair across different platforms. So there are, you know, there used to be three exchanges in the United States. There are probably 50 now, or, or maybe even more than 50 at this point in time. Um, and it's not fair if you trade on one exchange when there's a better price on another exchange. So they were trying to link the exchanges together to ensure that investors would always get the best price they could. So I sat on a number of panels for the SEC and gave my thoughts and opinions as to how I thought things should be done and, and, and had the opportunity to speak directly with um, all of the commissioners at, uh, during the, that time period. Uh, so it was, it was a lot of fun for me to, uh, uh, as a practitioner, to help out with the, the regulators as, as they were, I think, making great improvements in our marketplace. Yeah, expanding a little bit on this idea of markets and, and exchanges as a vehicle to participate in, in profit. A lot of the discussion around emerging markets is about the economic growth and GDP growth and how you can participate in that as an investor. But I think you are a little bit more cynical about the direct relationship between economic growth and GDP and how that translates into markets. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, I, I can give you two examples um, that, that explain that uh, GDP growth, economic growth, and uh, stock market returns really aren't correlated. So think back to the, the 
global financial crisis uh, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, as you'll recall, everybody I talked to around the world felt we were going into a very slow growth economic environment. And I agreed with that view. And it turns out we were all right. Uh, we've been globally, we've been in a very slow growth economic environment. Um, and then if you'll recall at the same time, because of that, people felt that we would have very low equity returns going forward because of this low growth. I, I was arguing that no, it would actually be the exact opposite, that you would have high returns going forward because of the perceived risk in the marketplace. We'd had the, the crash of the tech bubble in 2000 to 2002, and then we had the financial crisis, and I think investors' perception of risk was extraordinary. And, you know, if you think, well, if you were expecting a low return in equities, let's say uh, equities have returned historically about 10%, and if you expected, say, 5%, would you invest in equities when you could get a 4% return on bonds, which have, you know, a fraction of the volatility? Nobody would invest in equities. They'd put all their money in bonds for, you know, you wouldn't take all that volatility risk for an extra 1%. So I was arguing that the stock market had repriced itself so that it could provide great returns going forward. It's all about pricing. That's what determines future returns. You can take a great firm and make it a lousy investment by overpaying for it. Conversely, you can take a lousy firm and make it a great investment by underpaying for it. So it's all about where you, you price things initially. And the markets had pulled back dramatically, uh, pricing things very low to provide great returns going forward, which we've had over the last decade, extraordinary returns. Another simple example that I'll give is the period of the 20th century, the 1900s. The UK economy grew 1.8% per year. Their GDP growth was 1.8% per year. And the US economy grew 3.2% per year. Much faster growing economy if you compound that out over the 100-year time period. The UK economy grew about sevenfold. The US economy grew about 17-fold during that same period of time. Uh, during that period of time, the UK equity market returned about 10.1% per year, on average, obviously, with volatility. During that same period of time, the US equity market returned 10.1% per year with volatility. So there really has been no correlation between economic growth and equity returns. You mentioned there as well that the important element in there is, is, is risk. Is it a case where perhaps people focus too much on, on volatility as a measure of risk rather than taking into account all the other elements, including valuation? Yeah, I think people do uh, do focus on volatility. And if you've got a long time horizon, you don't really need to focus on it. Uh, uh, if you've got a short time horizon, I, I think volatility probably is important to you. If, you're, if you need your money a year from now, volatility is definitely your enemy. If you, you happen to get a bad return over the next year and take your money out, you've got less money to take out. So so volatility is important depending on your time horizon. If, if you're 25 years old saving for retirement 40 years from now, it doesn't really matter if the market goes down dramatically in the crash of 87 or the, the crash of the tech bubble or the global financial crisis. All that matters is where the market is 40 years later when you're, you're retired. Um, and, and actually, if you look at uh, a, the stock market itself, look at the price levels of the stock market over the last 50 years, all of those market crashes look like a blip in, the, in, the, in a heartbeat. Um, when you look at them, they're, they're really nothing when put in a long-term perspective. But so 
people probably do focus on volatility a little bit too much, but people tend to be too short-term oriented too. They, they don't think long-term. You are here in Australia partly because you're an advisor to the investment committee of Sun Super. How, how did you get in contact with them? I retired six years ago from, from Vanguard, and uh, Sun Super was a client of Vanguard. I had not actually had, I spent a lot of time in Australia uh, during my working career because I did have an investment team in Melbourne. So uh, I got here a couple of times a year and, and uh, did meet uh, a number of clients of Vanguard's, but I don't believe I had actually ever met Sun Super. Turns out when I retired, uh, Scott Hartley, who was the CEO of Sun Super, was, I think, looking for somebody to uh, lend advice to the investment committee of Sun Super, somebody who had perhaps a slightly different point of view. He was looking for somebody who could, I think, play a slight devil's advocate role, uh, maybe offer a, a slightly different point of view. And while, you know, investing is investing, and we've all uh, had the same theory of investing, um, you, you, you do have a little bit of a different experience depending on your environment. So, you know, my work experience is probably different from what you might experience in Australia. And so I think Scott um, felt I, I might be able to add something at the margin to, uh, to Sun Super uh, as either a devil's advocate or something that uh, they just hadn't thought about. So did you have to play devil's advocate a lot so far? Oh, you know, I, I, um, I, I chip in uh, every meeting and, uh, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say anything earth shattering, just something that um, a, a lot of times there, there is perceived wisdom and, and sometimes I question it. Sometimes I might even believe in the perceived wisdom. But, uh, you know, I just want to be a hair shirt and, uh, and, and challenge the thought so to see if people uh, can justify the thought. So, I, I, you know, I try to play a meaningful role without being obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> so do you see a lot of similarities or, or differences between the issues that um, the Australian pension funds and, and perhaps U.S. Uh, institutional investors grapple with? I think the nature of, of superannuation is a little bit different from institutional investors in the U.S. So ultimately, superannuation is about members, whereas institutions in the U.S. frequently might be an endowment, a foundation, a, uh, uh, a defined benefit plan, a pension plan. And of course, you have those here as well, but, but superannuation is not like that. Uh, superannuation would be more similar to our 401k plan structure, and it, where you're dealing directly with individuals and, and members. Uh, and so I'd say it's very similar to that, which is, in our view, it's a little bit more retail than institutional. Uh, but I'd say it's applied a little bit differently here. In, in the U.S., it's typically stocks, bonds, and cash. And here, uh, through most superannuation firms that I'm familiar with, uh, in addition to those uh, big building blocks that everybody's familiar with, they also invest in, in private investments as well and al alternatives also. Yeah, I think in the past you also have put a lot of emphasis on the importance of asset allocation within, within an investment strategy. And I think in Australia, there's still a lot of funds that have a static asset allocation, high percentage of equities, a little bit of bonds. Do you think that makes sense or, or should there be a more dynamic form of asset allocation to play into the different circumstances in the market? Investing is a social science and not a hard science. If it were a hard science, I would say, you know, you should be dynamically adjusting your portfolio given the circumstances. Unfortunately, if you ask 
uh, 10 economists what's going to happen in the economy over the next year, you'll get 11 answers. And, um, and, and that's the problem with, um, with investing. We just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, everybody's got an opinion. But um, uh, frequently, the consensus is wrong. So uh, if you were correct and knew that the market was going to go down, and if you're correct in that assumption, then yes, it would make sense to dynamically adjust your portfolio and lighten up on equities. Unfortunately, people overestimate their, you know, their knowledge. As, uh, there's a, uh, it's, it's called in behavioral finance, it's called the overconfidence. People suffer dramatically from overconfidence. And, and they typically do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so, you know, think to yourself, how many people do you know or you've heard of that sold out in 2009, got out of the stock market in 2008 or 9 after the market had crashed? And then, I mean, people were asking me in 2012, when do I get back into the market? Well, the market was already up 100% by 2012, and they've been sitting on the sidelines. Um, so that's the danger of, of trying to dynamically adjust your portfolio. It's just that um, we just don't know what's going to, to happen yeah, I think there's a, an interesting il- illustration of that in um, the annual report of one of the uh, largest Australian super funds. And this is a super fund that um, has what I call a, a direct investment option where they allow the members to manage or pick some of the investments directly. And you could see that over the course of the financial crisis, it's exactly what they did. They sold out at the lowest point and sold back in when already stocks had gone up for most of its recovery and so destroyed quite a bit of value there which um, I think everybody's prone to but uh, it's an interesting question around these direct investment options as well yeah that's that's a, that's a tragic story I mean you know that impacts people's lives and their the, ultimately their retirement and it's um, it's really unfortunate there's been a whole um, study in finance called behavioral finance that, that looks at these issues and hopefully in the future we'll learn and, and uh, be able to counteract them. Yeah. Now, throughout your career, you've seen a few crises. Um, is, is there anything that we can learn from them? Um, every crisis is different, but are there some shared elements that, that people can guard against, or is it more a, a question of sensible asset allocation? You know, I think it does boil down to uh, sensible asset allocation. You know, we, at Vanguard, we always talked about stay the course. And the only reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, because we just don't know what's going to happen. I think the, the crash of 87, um, I going into that, you know, I, I didn't think we were going to get the returns um, that we had gotten previously. I didn't see a crash coming, and it happened all in one day, and so, you know, it was too late to respond after the fact. Um, the tech bubble... Actually, we at Vanguard were concerned about that. I mean, that's to me, that's one of the most visible things that, that you could observe. I mean, valuations were just ridiculous. And we, did, we didn't know how it was going to play out. I mean, we, we knew that returns were going to be less going forward um, than historical returns. We didn't know if it would just be you'd get 3% for the next 10 years or whether you'd see a 43% decline in the market. Well, we got the latter, unfortunately. We didn't know that. The other, the other situation I saw that um, really you could see, I think pretty plainly, was the one I mentioned earlier at the bottom of the market in the, the global financial crisis, that equity returns were going to be good going forward. But usually, you know, in, in my career, the only two that really seemed uh, probable to me was the 
the decline of the bubble or the imminent decline of the the tech bubble, you know, just returns were just going to be less, and and financial crisis being an opportunity to invest at the bottom. Uh, but I didn't see the financial crisis coming. I mean, you know, we knew there was a lot of turmoil, but I didn't see the destruction that we had. So you know, you, you didn't have cash sitting on the sidelines at the bottom anyways if you didn't get it out of the market beforehand. So um, you know, our view is really, uh, unfortunately. Investors typically are best off if they stay the course. I mean, that's just what we observe historically. Yeah, and and doing a bit of crystal ball guessing. Are there any sort of risks that you think people should look out for today? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the the markets have been uh, actually pretty pretty reasonable. Um, not not too volatile. You know, we've had a few spikes here and there, but actually, if you look at the last five years historically, that's we've experienced low volatility. I think it's more of the same um, for the foreseeable future. I don't see what upsets the apple cart from a, an economic standpoint. You know, typically, um, economic expansion ends when either the central banks are trying to fight inflation, which they're not. I mean, they're, they're hoping we get a little bit more inflation, in fact. Uh, and the other would be when consumers uh, are so stretched from borrowing that they just can't spend anymore. And while I am a little bit worried that debt levels have increased, I don't think they're at crisis levels. And, and hopefully we don't get to crisis levels. I mean, that that's what happened in the financial crisis. Um, but so I, I think it's a little bit more of the same, kind of muddling along, probably okay returns in the stock market and slow growth uh, for the next year or year and a half. And summing it all up, um, I thought I might ask you as well, looking back over the long career that you have, could you share some of the moments that you uh, find most memorable of them as well? And perhaps some points where you said, that was a hard period, but I learned a lot from it. Yeah, well, there are so many things that I I remember. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, the crash of 87 was really scary. Uh, And I was two weeks into my job. And I, I, I wasn't even thinking about could I be fired or laid off because all of a sudden we've got a lot less assets. But uh, uh, fortunately, we, we stuck with it. Um, so that's certainly in my mind. I, you know, reflecting back on my career, I think um, the most fun was actually the people relationships, the people I worked with, uh, a, a great bunch of people uh, still have uh, very strong friendships going back. I also enjoyed talking with investors. For the most part, I was you know, back at the office um, overseeing the investment team. But uh, but I would get out and talk with institutional and retail investors from time to time, and I really enjoyed that. And I guess a few particular instances. I remember one day Jack Bogle, uh, early on in my career, coming into my office and uh, standing in the doorway. We had just crossed $2 billion in uh, our S&P 500 index fund, the only index fund at that point. And, uh, and he said, Gus, you wait. Someday indexing is going to be really big. We'll have $10 billion someday. And Jack Bogle was not really prone to understatement, but he, he missed that by by a bit because now Vanguard has $4 trillion worth of uh, indexed assets. But uh, uh, I'll, I'll always remember that one. And I guess that you mentioned something that I, I really learned from uh, that might have even been a scary experience. The financial crisis was extremely, extremely scary. And I had the opportunity with our CEO, Jack Brennan, uh, to speak with the Treasury and, and uh, various regulators uh, during that period of time, trying to figure out what was going to go on. I remember uh, driving in to work at about four in the morning, 
uh, t- because that's when our opportunity was to talk with the Treasury. They were working all night long, and I, I was sleeping for a couple of hours. Uh, but it was, it was pitch black out, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the world may have changed going forward. And that was scary, and, uh, you know, I, I learned I don't want to repeat that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can imagine that. Well, Gus, thank you so much for um, this conversation, and it was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy the stay in Australia. Well, thank you very much. It's been very fun to be with you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.